Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. In this series, Safe Lives are shining a spotlight on lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans victims of domestic abuse. I'm Colette Eaton-Harris from the Safe Lives Knowledge Hub and in this episode I met with Millie and Ian of LGBT plus anti-violence charity Gallup. They speak here of how their clients often experience multiple forms of violence and oppression the role of intersectionality in understanding their clients' needs, and the complexity of receiving referrals for both the primary perpetrator and the primary victim. So I'm in London today and I'm joined by Millie and Ian from the organisation Gallup. Welcome Millie and Ian. Could you tell us a bit about Gallup and uh, your role within the organisation? Um, Okay, cool. So myself and Ian both work on the domestic violence service. Uh, We are both advocates for uh, victims or survivors of domestic abuse who are LGBT who live in London. Um, We work alongside two other services that Gallup has, um, which is for hate crime and for sexual violence. Often we can work jointly with those different services, those different advocates, um, and sometimes we have our own sort of uh, clients that are just for the DV service. Um, we also have a trans advocate and we have a young person's advocate. Um, and essentially, I mean, the main mission of Gallup is to provide support, uh, advocacy and advice to people who are LGBT in London who have experienced violent crime. Um, and the way in which we do that, as I said, is by sort of um, operating three different broad services, hate crime, sexual violence and domestic violence. Just the only thing I would add to that is that one of our main services within the domestic violence um, pathway of Gallup is the LGBT Domestic Abuse Partnership, which is sort of an innovative partnership that Gallup has, leads on, which is a combination of a number of other LGBT services to really um, prioritize domestic violence. So that's Stonewall Housing, who provide housing support to victims and survivors of domestic abuse and London Friend, who provide a specialist trauma-informed counselling service for um, LGBT uh, victims and survivors, and the Switchboard, who uh, signpost people to the Domestic Abuse Partnership. So, um, for uh, the, the clients that you're supporting, uh, what, what do you tend to find in terms of their, like, um, presenting need to you? Do people come directly to you looking for a domestic abuse service or does it tend to be that they come to you through other routes and you know you uh, identify the domestic abuse through your work with them? Um, in my experience it's really varied. Um, I think uh, we have self-referrals and we have a self-referral form that can be found on our website. Um, we quite regularly get Um, referrals from other domestic violence uh, organisations including MARAC. Um, We sometimes get referrals from the police themselves and then we can also get referrals from other professionals who are working for organisations that provide support and advice and things like that but aren't DV or DA specific or women's organisations. So it's quite varied um, in terms of where our clients come from. We also do have, uh, as I mentioned sort of previously, when we're joint working, often they can be sort of more internal referrals. So Mm -hmm. someone may have come through to get some support around hate crime or they've experienced sexual assault and they're they're trying to get support around that. And through their work with an advocate on the other services, it comes out that they are experiencing um, intimate partner violence or they've had past experience of familial abuse. Um, And it's sort of on the advice or support of of that other advocate and they bring us bring them over to us as well so yeah it's really varied um, in my experience. 
think we're lucky in that the National LGBT Domestic Violence Helpline is sort of run out of, Gallup runs the helpline that's run out of our offices, and it's very much sort of a collaborative approach between the casework service and the helpline. So a lot of people may ring the, the National Helpline to get some advice, um, some emotional support, mm-hmm. and the helpline advisors may end up referring, if appropriate, into um, caseworker service as well. Yeah, and it's actually really great to have this, um, as Ian said, this kind of two different services working alongside each other, one of which is sort of more local and it's based in London and the other one is national. Um, So we do feel like we're kind of trying to at least support people around the country. um, And we offer different different services as as according to our uh, capacities. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think is the real like benefit to having a specialist LGBT service? Like what do you think that I mean, do you want to go first? Yeah, I can answer that I think a couple of ways. I think that one benefit which Millie touched on about the, the different strands of the services that we provide, so sexual violence, hate crime, trans advocacy, and sort of domestic abuse, um, what I think what we find with a lot of our clients is that they don't just experience one form of victimization. Mm-hmm. And so it's really useful for us to have special LGBT specialists in different facets of the criminal justice system, different facets of victimization, so that we can really have a sort of I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it a multidisciplinary approach, but a multi-professional approach to be able to understand and formulate that person's experience better. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with I think pretty much all of my trans clients have been um, victims of hate crime, um, as well as in, with domestic abuse, which is the service that I operate. So it's very useful to be able to sit next to a hate crime specialist who is also working on the case to yeah. be able to look at a joint approach. It's not that this victimization is happening in isolation. Sure. So I think that's um, a useful aspect of having an LGBT specialist organization. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything more. I mean, I personally think that the the benefits are endless. I mm. think that there is something that is really important about being accepted and not judged for who you are. I think, as Ian touched on, there are real systematic um, forms of oppression that LGBTQ plus people experience um, they are not the only form you know it's not the only form of oppression we know of and they're not the only oppressed group and an intersectional um, attitude and approach is also really important mm-hmm. um, you know working with as I mean as Ian just said sort of a trans woman who has experienced hate crime you know that person is a woman as well as LGBT mm-hmm. um, so thinking about things in a multi um, so yeah, sorry. Intersectional approach is so important because people are not just boxes that are ticked. They are so you know made up of so many different experiences and needs and vulnerabilities and complexities. Um, and one of my favourite kind of terms when I explain what I do um, to people and and the fact that it's a specialist service mm. is is expert by experience. And obviously, mm. what that doesn't mean is that when my client walks through the door, I don't know exactly what they've been through. I haven't walked in their shoes, but at the same time, I do know. Um, what homophobia can feel like Um, and I do know how the odds are stacked against them in terms of barriers to getting support I do know in ways the ways in which they may have been um, oppressed systematically in terms of criminal justice solutions and the police and I do know um, what that feels like when someone looks at you in a way that makes you feel othered Mm. Um, and again that doesn't necessarily mean that we will always have this cohesive 
um, um, level of support, but it is so important to our clients that they feel that and they know it. Um, and I know from feedback from my clients over the years that, you know, actually um, women who sleep with women or men who sleep with men, um, there, are, there are very, very different kind of issues and um, difficulties and challenges um, depending on how you are perceived by the world and who, mm. you know, how you identify and who you sleep with. Um, but, you know, I, it's kind of been a sort of common comment that I have received from my clients, whether they be man, woman, trans or other, um, that they just felt such relief that they wouldn't be seen as their sexuality and therefore be told no. Yeah. Um, and when we think about domestic violence, obviously with a risk-focused approach, we know how scary things can get. We know how, how easily and how quickly things can go very, very serious and how quickly things can get very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're thinking about barriers to getting support, mm -hmm. that's only going to increase someone's risk. Mm -hmm. um, so it's... It, I mean, yeah, I could wax lyrical for hours about um, importance of specialist services. And I would, I, I personally, and I think Ian is of a similar opinion to me, that we would um, support sort of BME specialist services. We absolutely support women's specialist services. It's not about um, LGBT being more important, but it is about yeah. understanding um, the complexities and, and difficulties people can have because of mm. um, societal uh, discrimination and I guess also then knowing what that person uh, must have gone through what it's taken for them to walk through your door or to pick up the phone uh, and talk to you because we um, we know that it's hugely underreported LGBT um, domestic abuse do you have any thoughts about what gets in the way of people reaching out to services or services reaching out to individuals I mean, I certainly do. I think Ian's looking like he definitely does. Do you want to...? I mean, I think there are a lot of things that end up preventing people from um, reaching out to service. I think that there's a strong narrative that exists that does not necessarily include LGBT victimization. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's an internal barrier that people end up facing when they experience abuse, that they may not interpret what they are experiencing as abuse. Um, because they have been largely left out of the mainstream narratives. I think that there are a lot of clients that I've experienced who have um, gone to other services and have not had a particularly good experience of either the police or the criminal justice system, maybe in response to their own victimization or maybe in other uh, facets of their life. Maybe they um, you know, were, were homeless and they were shoplifting and they had a negative experience of the police in that way and they don't want to engage um, or report anything because they're sort of quite fearful of the police. Um, so I think that there are some sort of identity barriers in feeling that they will be specifically judged because of their identifications um, that prevent them from engaging with services. I think those are some of them. There's many, many, many more. Yeah, I mean, I think if we were to try and capture all of them, we would be here for... A, I'm not sure that that would be possible in one yeah. single conversation, but I absolutely agree with Ian. I think in terms of, um, you know, we... Gallup have an understanding that sexuality and gender are separate things. Um, however, obviously, uh, the way in which kind of oppression can work and the way in which identity can work, these two things can become 
um, quite sort of involved with each other and I do think one aspect and one thing that I would argue is definitely a barrier to um, LGBTQ plus people reporting or, or not reporting but even just reaching out to get support mm. is gender stereotypes you know um, uh, men who sleep with men who are experiencing domestic violence at the hands of an intimate partner well boys will be boys you know they're just pl rough playing mm. um, women who are being abusive to um, a female partner again women aren't capable of domestic violence it's yeah. men who perpetrate that and I think again it, this these are struggles to my knowledge that the, the VORG sector is still kind of working with the idea that um, women are to blame victims are to blame why doesn't she just leave all of those things are still incredibly present in the LGBTQ um, domestic violence sort of sector as well um, and just sort of the understanding that domestic violence is not just physical it's it's yeah so much more than that and we know that um, but I do think people who are not well versed in sort of domestic violence jargon or understandings or um, you know sort of labels will not necessarily have those ideas they won't necessarily be able to identify for themselves mm -hmm. so there's a barrier right there just in being able to say um, yes this is abuse and I'm experiencing it mm -hmm. um, on top of that you know quite a lot of the time I think it's a sort of a well-known story now where someone comes out to their family their family are homophobically abusive towards them that isn't actually called domestic abuse yeah. but it actually is yeah um, the fact that it was perpetrated by a family member would would constitute domestic violence but people do not think of it like that and again it's just about these understandings and labels that you know people are missing out on or not understanding correctly because they already do not trust in services they already don't trust in systems and yeah there's a long way to go and, and in terms of risk what you're both describing is that for many individuals they've that you know they've had poly victimization so that the risk posed to them could be risk from several different people um, and could be a, a risk from unknown people in in terms of you know strangers perpetrating hate crime um, and also what you're describing is they may not have that family network that if you're creating a safety plan you would be able to encourage the client to rely on. So I'm just wondering for, for people that are not experienced in supporting LGBT clients, what particular risk and safety planning issues would you say uh, you know, come up frequently? I think it's a, a hard thing to, to answer if we were just to isolate LGBT as a an area of focus because it, I, I think in, in the majority of my uh, clients there are intersectional identities and that each one of those then ends up having specific um, risk factors associated with them. So for example, a large proportion of my clients are um, not uh, originally from the UK whose immigration status is their primary concern and that ends up being a locus of control that the abuser can use. And so they're not aware of their rights within the UK. They're very fearful of going back to being deported back to a homophobic or transphobic country. Um, and so it's a significant risk factor for them in, in that we have to unpick a lot of things that are sort of sur um, surrounding the, the domestic abuse. And, and, and I think that's just one example of the cases that we end up working with. So we could be working with people who are, I don't know, who are, are travelers. We've worked with travelers and they'd be, and then getting specialist advice um, in relation to their circumstance within their communities is, is something that we need to reach out because we're not the specialist in travelers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's difficult to say what are the 
specific LGBT risk factors because I mean, maybe I'd be controversial in saying I don't know if there. If I was to say specifically to LGBT, I don't. I think there are some. I think that, for example, what you just outlined, Colette, about uh, there being a higher rate of chance of them not having a family member or a friend to go to when and if refuge is not an option. I think that is quite a specific thing to do with LGBT. I think. For example, chemsex is often something we come across, and that is something that we would would say actually is quite um, specific to the LGBT community. And for those of you that are listening that don't really understand what chemsex mm-hmm. is, it's a sort of it's a rising practice within predominantly men who sleep with men. It surrounds a sort of three different substances: methadone, uh, crystal meth, and GHB. Um, both, all three of which um, enhance sexual practice um, and capacity um, they are uppers and they can be incredibly addictive incredi- incredibly harmful substances and they have um, you know usual implications on uh, violence and sexual violence um, and and domestic violence um, and we find that you know people who are engaging in chemsex practices often um, can be you know very very vulnerable um, and be uh, when we look at things from a risk perspective things can seem very risky mm. so there, there are a couple of things I think HIV as well as one thing outing someone's status as HIV positive outing someone's status as trans all of these things yeah. are really specific the threat of outing someone to their family again I think what Ian was talking about in terms of um, not being from the UK and therefore being more vulnerable if their family is outside of the UK and the perpetrator is threatening to out them as bisexual, transgender, uh, gay um, all of these things are quite specific um, but actually I would also agree that it's quite hard to um, kind of n- just see someone as just LGBT sure. because we know, don't we, that, that they are a collection of so many other things yeah. but with regards to safety planning, just on that point I would just advise any sort of IDVAs or caseworkers um, you know, with with safety planning, in my perspective, in my experience, it's just about the case. It's about the nuances and complexities and and um, details, and it's about keeping, you know, a cool head. Um, referring to other organisations like ourselves, you're more than welcome to get in touch, um, and just go with what you know. Go with what you feel is right. Listen and talk to the client. Um, and normal standard safety planning does still apply. Uh, that we would tell mm-hmm. anyone who is uh, experiencing current domestic violence. Um, I think one of the dangers in, uh, no, maybe that's the wrong way to start phrasing it, but as sort of domestic abuse advocates, we do see things from a risk perspective. And I do think that there is a, a sometimes a problem with that and that we will see risk and um, in a way that potentially may um, negate agency in a bit. So within the chemsex scene, for example, um, we've got to be very careful on how we talk to clients about chemsex, chemsex um, communities, because we don't want to be causing that person any further harm or any judgments upon them, that that is a sexual practice, that that individual is um, able to, 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 to have an agency decision and, and participate in. We just want to help people to be able to be informed of their rights and be able to make informed choices and keep themselves safe. Um, so I, I think my concern is in historic approaches of about looking at LGBT people and from a risk perspective has led to further oppression and further incidences of homophobia and transphobia than actually from sort of maybe a positive perspective of informing choices and keeping mm-hmm. them aware of, of, of 
danger. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, um, not just when we work around chemsex, but also I, I would... I would say that it's across all three different services, but just like any other sort of supportive services, we are pro-social, we are person-centred, we um, put the client's wishes first. It's about empowerment um, and kind of making that balance between um, empowering someone um, and also having a, a, a comprehensive assessment of their current understanding, uh, their current um, situation because we are the professionals and they are the people that need support. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're the ones with the authority or anything like that. So, mm. yeah, I agreed. And, and what you've touched on there in terms of, you know, historically um, risk being used in a very negative way, um, you can see why then individuals may be really concerned about coming to, um, you know, services that aren't specialist for fear that what, what becomes assessed is their identity rather than this is absolutely. domestic abuse yeah, and absolutely. it can happen in anyone's relationship. It's that it, needing to feel protective of your identity at the same time as absolutely. saying, you know, this relationship's abusive. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for um, services that are looking at their intake and seeing that they have very few LGBT people being referred. Is there anything that services could do to better equip themselves or better advertise themselves? Um, I personally would um, advise them to look and see what their local LGBT uh, wellbeing service that might provide support around relationships and see if they can create um, better working relationships with that organisation, skills share, maybe there might be something that that organisation can give to the LGBT organisation, mm -hmm. there could be sort of um, commonality there. Um, and I would um, you know, approach these services and see if there's anyone who could come over and do some training. I would also increase efforts to um, actually advertise services to um, specific kind of scene areas perhaps, or perhaps um, doctors, clinics and things like that. Um, and also just thinking about um, general um, advertising and outreach and what that message looks like. You know, if you are a women and girls only service, is that an inclusive and women and girls only service? If you provide domestic violence support to all genders, is that actually support or is that a sort of to tokenistic thing of, yes, we provide support to men, here's the number for men's advice line, which isn't actually that comprehensive. Um, and whilst you can see that sort of an effort has been made, most people will see that as, as just being quite tokenistic and they probably won't feel particularly trustful of that service. So it's about thinking about the message you're putting out, but also what, what you have to then combat anything you might get back from that message. So looking at your service provision, how you can be more LGBT friendly. I mean, one really, really basic thing to think about is pronoun use. And, and how hot are you in terms of adapting to someone's pronoun use? It's okay to make mistakes, and we're not saying that you should be perfect, but are you willing to say, yes, of course I'll call you he or she or they? Um, you know, how, how approachable are you in terms of LGBT, you know, some of the issues we've touched on today and some of the issues that we may not have touched on but may be really pressing for someone's life? Do they think... Do you give off a, a kind of impression that you might judge or not understand? And do you give off an impression that you won't necessarily take guidance from another organisation that actually may have a better um, understanding experience of this, this issue than you do? So. Yeah, I think that's right with sort of pronoun usage. I think it, it illustrates a point that I think a lot of organisations that maybe have limited experience of working with an LGBT population 
are hesitant to ask questions about somebody's sexuality or their gender identity. And that may be, I think it's, I think it's misguided, well-intentioned, but I think what that does is it makes, from the service user's point of view, it makes it feel like it's not a service that they can access. So even just a, a, the quick question of asking, um, which pronouns would you like me to, to use when, I, when I'm speaking to you? The worker who may be less experienced with that may be feeling a lot of anxiety about that, but the person who is being asked the question is not feeling that anxiety mm-hmm. um, at all, and it actually may feel them feel that may lead them to feel like they are welcome and included in the service. Yeah, agreed. And, and so much easier to answer that question than to feel at some point I need to correct this Absolutely. worker. That's or it's a disclosure me. I need to make, mm. um, and I need to take that on. Yeah. Um, as a as a kind of point of labor that I have to do yeah. for this person that's ostensibly this supporter mm-hmm. um yeah I would say uh, this isn't the question that you've asked but I've got I'm only allowed to, I can only be here for a couple more minutes um a particular nuance of a difficulty that we face as an LGBT organization that Millie and I speak about on a nearly daily basis and so does our service manager so we end up getting referred cases that um, Vogue organizations would not be referred. So, for example, we'll have referrals from the police where both both parties of the in the abuse are referred to our service, um, and that is not something that I think any Vogue organization would experience. And I think that's because we end up working with same-sex couples, and that the police don't know where to uh, refer these people to. So they end up referring us the primary perpetrator primary perpetrator and mm. and the victim in the same referral right and i think there's also a lack of other services as well absolutely we are, we are, i think we're known as one of very mm. few lgbt plus mm. domestic violence specific advocacy services so where else are they going to refer to um sorry it's not such yeah but it creates real challenges for us mm. and how do we manage that situation how do we how do we uh, respond to that yeah. um what language are we using um how are we keeping our clients safe? We are a victims organization. What is our definition of sort of victim mm. and and how do we navigate those facets that I don't think other organizations are having to deal with? No. And I think actually in some ways when we talk about a, a risk-informed in, mm. uh, approach, actually that can be quite useful when it comes to this kind of work because um, actually yeah. being conscious of risk and safety is a real cornerstone of kind of trying to understand the dynamics that we're being given. Mm-hmm. Who is the primary perp and who is the primary VS? Um, wh- where, what's happened with these two people or with this family? Um, and obviously a risk of um, informed approach is really key for that. And, and making that assessment is, is, is one thing which we haven't got time to go into now, but having made that assessment and being quite confident in you know, who has the power and control in that relationship. I think what um, some practitioners say is the most challenging bit is, what do you then say to somebody when you've decided that they are the primary yeah. perpetrator yeah. and you can't offer them a service? Do you have any thoughts on how, how you can manage that? Um, I, I, again, I know it might sound like a bit of a non-answer and I really don't mean it to, but I genuinely think it is a case-by-case mm. thing and I think it depends on the perpetrator um, and you know, we don't often talk about uh, perpetrator needs and vulnerabilities, but actually it is about the, the perpetrator's needs and vulnerabilities as well as, and it's about just trying to communicate clearly um, with no implication of risk to the other party. Um, it's about trying to signpost on. Uh, often, actually, Respect can be a very useful mm-hmm. organisation to um, refer to because actually um, 
without trying to kind of sound like we pass the buck because we absolutely don't, they do provide support to people who are both victims and perpetrators and they are very, mm -hmm. very experienced at making those kinds of assessments and judgments mm -hmm. and often that can be quite a good way to sure. kind of steer off someone who we have labelled as a perpetrator into an organisation that will provide support yeah. to them in a really kind of effective way. But it's hard, it's really hard and for the most part I think both myself and Ian are, are uh, involved in it but for the, for the most part it does get taken up that extra level to our line manager who yeah. will deal with that. I think um, it's a question that's hard for us to answer at the minute but it is something that the organisation is very aware of. So at our last sort of team meeting for example we met with um, the chief executive and our service manager and we, this issue was discussed and we're, we are not the experts in, in that, that facet of work and uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to bring in specialists. I think we're bringing in a, a forensic psychologist to come in and help us devise a policy and practice guidance and how we can respond to these in a way that is not causing further damage to an already oppressed group. Mm. Yeah. And, and what you're describing there is it's about saying to somebody, we are not the appropriate service for you. Yeah. There are more appropriate services. So it's not saying to someone, we're just not going to help you. Yeah, of course, and we're going to identify what yeah. would be what would be um, more appropriate. Thank you so much, both of you. I know you're rushing off to client appointments now. So thank you so much for for joining us on this podcast. No worries. Thank you.